33, Isaiah chapter 33. Chapter 33 is the last woe to the nation of Israel. From chapter 28 to chapter 35, we have prophecies which have a local and past fulfillment, and there are also those that are still future, prophecies that are to be fulfilled in the future. Now, a local fulfillment, the word local meaning Isaiah pronounces the judgment that's going to come against Syria in the first part of this chapter. That is, during the time that the chapter was written, that judgment came. Now, there are six woes that end in the Battle of Armageddon in chapter 34 of Isaiah 34, followed by the Millennial Kingdom brought to the earth in chapter 35. Here in chapter 33 is the last woe. And it pronounces judgment on those who try to destroy God's people and his land. And it starts out by speaking to the Assyrians, but also continues on to the final enemy of the last days. Chapter 33 is about God's people turning back to him. But not because they truly love him. Not because they want him. Because, they're true, because he's their true source of everything good. And it's not that he's their all in all and that, that he's all that they need. But they turn to him like a lot of people do as a last resort. I've tried everything else. I don't know what to do now. I'll go to God. True repentance really wasn't Judah's way of life. The pattern of Israel's way of life As you would see in the book of Judges, there was rebellion. Then God would bring judgment against them. And because the judgment was so great, then they'd repent. Then God would restore them. And guess what? The cycle would start all over again. Rebellion, judgment, repentance, restoration. All you have to do is read the book of Judges and you'll see that all the way through. God's people always seem to turn to God When they're in a place that they can't get out of. When they're shoved into a corner and they have nowhere else to go, they'll go to God. And for a lot of people, God seems to be just an emergency exit, a fire escape, a last resource for escape and disaster. And God in his mercy and in his patience and in his love humbly lovingly takes them back anyway. He comes to their rescue. And as we've been studying Isaiah, we've already learned that Judah was being threatened by the Assyrians. The Assyrians are a type of enemy. We've learned that God told Judah, don't go down to Egypt. Egypt being a type of the world. Don't go down to Egypt for help. Don't go to Egypt for protection because God had already promised to help and protect them. But they went down to Egypt anyway, looking for help. Totally ignoring God, even though God said, don't go down to Egypt. Now, in going down to Egypt, as we've been reading, how did that turn out for them? Well, as you'd expect, Egypt let them down. 
just like the world will let you down every time. And so Assyria kept coming in spite of the promise that was made to them, to the Egypt, that, that, he, that, that Egypt would protect them. You know, in 2 Kings 18, 13 through 16, King Hezekiah tried to buy off the Assyrians too. King Hezekiah told the king of Assyria, look, I'll pay you however much you want if you'll just leave us alone. Thinking, again, here's a picture of thinking you can bargain with the enemy. Like it's going to be, you know, on the up and up with you. Now check this out. When King Hezekiah said, look, to the king of Syria, I will pay you however much you want if you'll just leave us alone. The king of Assyria demanded more than 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. You know, this says that it's going to cost you big time to deal with the devil. It's going to cost you a lot. In order for King Hezekiah to get this much money, he took all the silver that was stored in the temple of the Lord and in the palace treasury. He even... He even went as far as taking, stripping the gold off of the doors of the Lord's temple and taking it off of the doorpost that he had overlaid with gold and he gave it all to the king of Assyria. Now these were holy treasures that he gave away. And these were holy treasures that weren't his to give away to begin with. They belonged to God. They were his holy treasures. And King Hezekiah gave them to this pagan king. And so many times as, as believers, we many times give what belongs to God to the enemy. Maybe in time, in service, you know, pleasing our flesh. Try to picture in your mind what's going on here with King Hezekiah. Here's all of these enemy troops from the Assyrian army. They're covering the land of Jerusalem like grasshoppers. And as far as the eye can see, all you can see is enemy soldiers all over the place. The leaders and the officials of Judah, they're standing on the city wall and they're nervously waiting and watching everything that's going on. They're watching God's holy possessions being hauled off from the temple of the Lord and the palace treasury and being taken to the tents of the Assyrians. How humiliating for God's people, but how twice is dishonoring to God. God's people were treating God like a nobody and then making him pay for their unfaithfulness. How many times do we make our own plans without involving God? And then when they fall apart, who do we blame for it? God. Why did you let this happen? Why did you do this to me? And I'll never forget a young lady that called for counseling one day. She was living with her boyfriend. She gets pregnant. She calls all distraught, wondering why God did this to her. I can't get pregnant right now. This, my relationship with my boyfriend isn't, isn't 
what it should be. It's not getting blessed. It's not being blessed. And blaming, why would God do this to me? And I said, first of all, I said, God did not do this to you. You're living in sin. You're living with your boyfriend. You're not married. You're committing fornication. And you know what the, re- re- the, the, the natural uh, result is of a man and a woman having sex? Children. What do you think was going to happen if you know, you're protecting yourself? But anyway, you know, it's like it doesn't register. God's not blessing me, and I don't know why. Really. Because they're so spiritually blind, they can't see what they're doing. And you see, that's what sin does. That's the effect of sin. It muddies the water. It clouds your vision, and it clouds your judgment. It blinds you spiritually. Man, it messes you up. You know, God's people here thought there was hope and security in this deal that they made with the enemy. They thought, well, since we paid them off, they're going to leave us alone. And they thought, well, pretty soon they're going to pack up all of their stuff and they're going to be gone and everything will be back to normal, business as usual, and we'll be okay. But that's not the way it turned out and seldom is it the way that it ever turns out. It usually never does turn out that way. So here are God's people anxiously watching from the wall Waiting for the Assyrians, who, made, who they made this deal with, to pack up their stuff and to go. But the leaders realized with serious concern and disappointment, hey, what's going on here? Nobody's leaving. They're not leaving like they said they were going to. Now, wait a minute. We had a deal, you guys. This wasn't the deal that we made. The Assyrians are not going to honor their deal. The Assyrians are going to attack us anyway. You see, Judah had made a plan with the devil. And he he never tells you the truth. He never tells you how it's really going to end up. But now they get it. We've been suckered. (laughs) They realize, how could we have been so foolish? We've blown it big time. We made a huge mistake. Everything we did was wrong and we gave away God's money and we dishonored him in the process and we've blown our witness as God's people. So now what do we do? Where do we go from here? Good question. What do you do when you come to this place in your life? When you're boxed in and you see no way out, there's nowhere to go. When you come to the realization everything that you did was wrong. When you recognize you left God out of your plans and nothing is going the way that you planned it to go. What now? Well, you do the only thing that you can do. You go to the only place that you have left and that is the throne of grace where we, have, where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So off to God they go. And they're going to God now, and they can't really tell Him, Oh, Lord, we love you so much. You're our sufficiency. You're our buckler. You're our shield. You're our sword. You're our refuge. You're our strong tower. 
You see, they can't go to him and say that because he wasn't all of that to them. He's, he's their last resort. They're coming out of desperation, not out of love and faithfulness. They can only go to him in humility with their tail tucked between their legs as, as God being their last chance, their last chance plan, and to fall upon his mercy. Now, how do you think God will react? Will he laugh at them and say, you've got to be kidding me. Now you want to come to me? Now you want my help? Will he reject them? Will he punishment? Will he punish them? Will he rebuke them? No, he takes them in. He takes them in in spite of their unfaithfulness. Now that's the background of chapter 33 here. And what Isaiah shows us here is God's response to his people who should have repented a long time ago. Now what does God say to people who have failed him? and are just starting to recognize him, understand him. Isaiah tells us here that the mess that we make of our lives is the very place where God meets us and gives us a fresh start, an opportunity to start all over again. When we are at our wit's ends, that's where we will find God. When we come to the end of our line, that's where he begins. When I come to the end of myself, I will find God. He isn't put off by how one-sided their relationship is with Him. He doesn't measure His unlimited grace against their sporadic repentance. In other words, He doesn't say, well, you guys, you, you, know, you were hit and miss. You weren't, you weren't faithful to me all the time. So you know what? I'm not going to give you grace all the time. I'm going to do to you what you did to me. No, he accepts their repentance at his cost. At his cost. So this chapter is for people who haven't been trusting God. Chapter 33 is for people who are coming to the understanding that they cannot treat God like a genie, like, like a magic lamp. And then rub it for help and out pops God to give you three wishes. To do whatever you need him to do. They can't ignore God and neglect God and expect his blessings in their life. And this chapter is for people who have given themselves to all the wrong things. Who have looked in all the wrong places for satisfaction. And they're just now seeing that they're wasting their life. I mean, I have been wasting my life. And I have been blowing the opportunity to be used by God and to experience His blessings. And if I don't make it with, with, right with God, I, I, it, those opportunities are going to be lost. And the message here is this. Even if you haven't really honored God in your life, that if you'll come to Him just as you are, He'll meet you right where you are. So let's begin now with chapter 33, verse 1. And it says, Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, and you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. God here is speaking to the Assyrian army. 
Assyria broke their promises over and over again, but insisted that others kept theirs. How often do we do the same thing? Demanding our rights, yet ignoring other people's rights. Broken promises. When we, make, when we break promises to, to, to people, it, 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 breaks, it breaks trust with them. It destroys relationships. We need to make it a point to keep our promises and at the same time ask the people that you made promises to but you didn't keep your promises to forgive you and treat others with the, with the same fairness that you want them to treat you with. Verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. These are the words of the righteous remnant who are waiting for God to deliver them from their enemies. God's people have become repentant. And this is what real repentance sounds like. Judah knows the only thing standing between them and destruction is God. Lord, our only hope is you. We don't have any hope apart from you, Lord. The psalmist said, my expectation is from you. My hope, it comes from you. We don't have any strength. Your strength, Lord, is what we need every moment of our life. We're always in need of you, Lord. And by faith, we call upon your grace. Verse 3. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you, lift up, when you lift yourself up, the nation shall be scattered. Here the people are putting their confidence in God. They know that all God has to do is to stand up and the nations will scatter and that they'll run every which way. Verse 4. And your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar as the running to and fro of locusts. He shall run upon them. When you plunder them, Lord, it will be like caterpillars and locusts covering the land and stripping every living thing bare and leaving nothing behind. The enemy will be stripped of their power. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and, wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. When Jesus comes, when Christ's kingdom is set up, millennial kingdom, and he's reigning, Jerusalem is going to be the home of justice and righteousness because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be ruling there. Here the people are saying, they're declaring that what they already knew that, that all they need is God. They already knew this. In other words, now they know that the key to life is faith in God. Here's the point. When we really trust God, we find that He's really for us. And when God is all that we have, we find that God is all that we need. This is how trusting in God changes our experience of God. When we put our total faith in Him, Enough to let him take control of every situation. He becomes our wisdom. He becomes our knowledge. He becomes our stability. And he becomes our strength. I think of Moses' mother. When she had come to the place where she couldn't keep little Moses safe anymore. You know, there was a decree that went out to kill all the baby boys. And she was hiding little Moses. 
because she knew there was something special about him. And after about three months, man, she couldn't keep him quiet. The guy would be crying, and she was afraid the, the, the soldiers would hear him, and they'd come and get him, and they'd come and kill him. So think of the decision that Moses' mom had to make. She says, I, I, I can continue to try to hide him, or I can let him go and let God have him. I mean, how hard for a mom would that be? So she had to come to that place where she says, I can't take care of him anymore. She had to put all of her trust in God. So she gets this basket, she covers it with pitch, something that would make it you know, waterproof. She takes him to the edge of the Nile River. And picture her holding this basket. It's in the water. But the struggle to let him go. The Nile is filled with alligators. Other things that could harm him, that could maybe hit the basket and tip it over and, and Moses drown, little Moses drowns. But the longer she holds on, the longer it's going to take for God to do something. She can't hold on forever. Had to be one of the hardest decisions, decisions and struggles for her to let go. Just like it's so hard for us to let go. It's for, it, 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 of certain things at certain times. But once she let go, she got to see God go to work. And I love this story. Because only God could do something like this. So she lets the basket go and off goes Moses in this basket floating down the Nile. Now Moses' sister was watching this from a distance to see what would happen to baby Moses, her little brother. And then she sees Pharaoh's daughter come down to bathe in the water. And Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket in the reeds. And Pharaoh's daughter sends some servants to go get the basket for her. And then when they bring the basket to Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter opens it up and there's this baby in the basket. And the little guy's crying and she felt sorry for the baby. And then Moses' sister goes to Pharaoh's daughter and asks her, hey, would you like me to go and, and find one of the Hebrew women to, to nurse this baby for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes. So Moses' sister goes and gets Moses' mother brings Moses' mother to Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter tells Moses' mother, not knowing it's Moses' mother, Pharaoh's daughter tells her, hey, would you take the baby and nurse him, and I'll pay you for your help. So Moses' mom gets her son back and takes him home and gets paid for nursing him. Who else could derange something like that? Only the Lord has these kinds of treasures, the treasures that we need. But it's not until we let go and give it to God. We can't get, get, we can't get them anywhere. These treasures, we can't get these treasures anywhere else or from, any, from anyone else. And this is the first thing we need to do is to turn back to God, placing our faith in Him. Verses 7 and 8. Surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the city. He regards no man. Isaiah gives a picture here of misery and hopelessness as Judah panics and falls apart. 
Trying to make peace with the enemy hasn't worked. They don't know what to do, where to go. The enemy is pounding on their door. They're trying to save themselves, but it has turned out to be a miserable failure. You see, no matter what you try to do, even the best plans and the best ideas will not work without God being involved. And we try to do so much without God. But not trusting God, not taking Him into consideration, not seeking Him, it never, it never turns out well. And we're doomed to fail. We have to be like Moses who said to God, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. I love that. Exodus thirty-three fifty. Moses said, you know, if you're not going to go with us, we ain't going. We don't want to go. Moses didn't want an angel to go with him. Because there was nothing special about an angel compared to God. He didn't want any substitutes. And you know what? No substitutes will ever do. There is no substitute for God. And the thing that made Israel different from all the other nations was that their God was present with them all the time. Many of the heathen nations, they had to carry their gods. They had to put on the back of camels or oxen and carry them and they had to set them up and, and nail them down so they wouldn't fall over. But God was with the nation of Israel all the time. His presence was with them all the time. He was a pillar of fire at night and he was a cloud by day and that's what Moses wanted and that's what Moses asked for. And Moses' heart must have jumped for joy when he heard God promise to go with the people and, and, and lead them into the promised land. You know, being without God is kind of like hell. And I think that's what makes hell, hell. The total separation and absence from God. What is hell? It's a place where God isn't. And I thought about this, and I, and I thought, that's what life can be like when you're living apart from God, and you've heard people say, my life is a living hell. Wow. How many times have you heard that? Hell, you know, earth is hell. This life is, is hell. Apart from God, you're exactly right. So if you're feeling alone and you're, or you're feeling defeated or you're, you feel beaten down by this world, depressed, broken, disillusioned, disappointed with yourself or others or with what you've done with your life, God can fix it all. And that's the best time to let God come into your life to help you. Verse 9. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness and Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. These once fruitful, productive places in Israel will be turned into a wilderness. Lebanon was known for its giant cedar trees. Sharon was very lush and productive. Bashan produced a lot of grain and cattle and Carmel was a thick forest. These were nice places. But without God, they're nothing. Even the most beautiful places without God aren't that pleasant. And life is nothing without God. It is not very pleasant without God. It is not living. It's just existing day to day to day. Verses 10 through 13. Now I will rise, says the Lord. 
Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be like the burning of, of lime. Like thorns cut up, they shall be burned in the fire. Hear, you who are afar off, what I have done. And you, are, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. Isaiah used a lot of pictures here to describe God's judgment in verses 11 through 12 on the Assyrians. The Assyrians had all kinds of plans on how they were going to conquer Jerusalem. But their plans would only turn out to be like dry grass and stubble. All of their plans would result in failure. He says here even their own breath would turn, would, would, would turn to fire and consume them. He said your people will be burned up completely and God would destroy them like thorn bushes cut down and tossed in a fire. God is very patient with his enemies and, and we can thank God for his patience, his long-suffering. But when God decides to judge and to take action, he doesn't mess around. And he does a very thorough job. Jerusalem's deliverance from the Assyrians was, was heard all over the country. And the Gentile nations had to acknowledge the greatness of Israel's God. In Isaiah's day, this was speaking about how God delivered Jerusalem from the mighty Assyrian army. But to us, to us New Testament Christians, it speaks of a much greater deliverance. In verse 10 here, notice the Lord says through Isaiah, notice, now I will rise. Jesus said to Matthew 27, 63, after three days, I will rise. In verse 10 here, the Lord said through Isaiah, now I will be exalted. Jesus said in Luke 14, 11, he who humbles himself will be exalted. In verse 10 here, the Lord said through Isaiah, now I will lift myself up. Jesus said in John 12, 32, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And even though God's deliverance of Jerusalem was mighty and it was miraculous, we can't take anything away, we can't take anything away from it. All right? God's deliverance of Jerusalem here, it was mighty, it was miraculous, but you know what? We can't, we can't, you know, again, take anything away from it. It cannot compare to the deliverance that Jesus Christ provided us, provided for us on the cross of Calvary when he abolished death and he delivered us from the bondage of sin and ourselves. The last note about verse 10 here, three times God said, now. Now. It, show, it speaks of the urgency of getting right with God. Now. He's saying, when you bottom out, when you hit bottom, that's when I will say, now I can do something for you. Now I can help you. When you quit trying to help yourself and you quit trying to defend yourself and take care of yourself, then God can help you. you know, it's it's kind of like the picture of a drowning man. And, and, and I've heard, you know, when... When a man is drowning and a person goes in and tries to help that person that's drowning, the person that's trying to rescue that person has to wait till they are almost gone. Because as long as they're alive and they're struggling and they're kicking and they're grabbing on, they will pull you down too. 
And sometimes the, the ones that's rescuing and the one that's drowning, they both die. And so it's when that person who's going down, who's drowning, when they quit trying to save themselves, when they quit kicking and grabbing and holding on and trying to survive, that's the point where they can be helped. And God will do that too. He says, yeah, I got to wait till this guy's going down for the third time before I pull him up. So sometimes we have to get really bad. We got to get so low and so to the bottom of the pit so that God can reach down and pull us out. Why continue to live? Here's the other thing. Why continue to live in that condition? In that horrible condition when you can get out of it now? And, and I've talked with those people as well. You know, I say, hey, God can fix this. But you have to choose to do it God's way. You know, give it to God. Turn your life over to God, and, and, and He can fix it. But they'd rather walk out and leave God in the office and go back to their mess. We can, it can be fixed. Paul said, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Verses 14 through 16. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall, shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? He who walks upright, uprighteous, I'm sorry, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. The miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem not only brought glory to God, among the Gentiles, it also brought fear and conviction to the Jews. See, God, you know, when God saves us, when God delivers us, it's not, it's not so that we're now free to go back to our sins. God doesn't save us in our sins. He saves us from our sins. And we are to forsake our sins. And there are those Christians who think when they get saved, they don't have to forsake the world. God, I love this, this quote by A.W. Tozer. He said, God's grace will save a man, but it will not save a man and his idol. The blood of Christ will shield a penitent sinner alone, but never the sinner and his idol. Faith will justify the sinner, but it will never justify the sinner and his sin. Jesus came to die for our sins. He came to deliver us from sin's bondage. Verse 15 here describes the kind of person that God will accept and bless. Those who are honest, those who are fair. Those who refuse to, to profit by dishonesty, who stay away from bribes, who refuse to listen to those who, who plot to murder. 
who shut their eyes to all temptation to do wrong. By ourselves, on our own, we can't do those things mentioned in verse 15. We can't, we can't achieve these qualities mentioned in verse 15. Not on our own. They come as we trust in Jesus Christ and as we grow in His grace and we take on His divine nature through the power of the Holy Spirit. Israel hoped that the miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem would bring these people to a place of true devotion to God. It's only when we walk with the Lord that we have real security and real satisfaction. In closing, let's look at verses 17 through 24. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception, of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the majestic Lord will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams in which no gallery, uh, no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Your tackle is loosed, they could not strengthen their mast, they could not spread the sail. Then they pray of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey, and the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. In these verses, 17 through 24, Isaiah is looking forward with his vision to the end times, and he saw Jerusalem being ruled by Jesus Christ. God's victory over Assyria was just a little taste of his victory that would, that would be over the whole pagan world system that will gather together one day to destroy Jerusalem. And compared to what they experienced with the Assyrians, the Jews in the Messianic kingdom won't experience any terror at all. They won't see any prideful military officers. They won't hear a foreign language. Jerusalem will be like a tent that will never be moved, Isaiah says. Peace, a pitch. It will be pitched by a river that will never carry the vessels of invading armies. The river here is a picture of the peace that God gives his people. Remember, David said in Psalm 23 that he leads me beside still waters. He leads me beside still waters. A picture of peace. There won't be any sickness. There won't be any sin in the city of God. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will be their Redeemer and their Savior. And the nation, verse 24 says, will be forgiven their iniquity. In Isaiah's day, the Jews were a sinful nation. They were a people that were loaded down with sin, just like lost sinners are today. But when they see Jesus and they trust in him, their sins will be washed away. If you've never paid attention to the loving, that, that, that awesome, gracious invitation of Isaiah 1.18, do it tonight. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, 
they shall be as wool. Father, we thank you once again for this beautiful chapter, Lord. And Father, gosh, it's so, it's so meaningful, God, and, and it's so relevant. And Father, we can re- re- relate to it so very well, God. And Father, may we repent if that's what our need is, if, this, if the Holy Spirit has, has shown us the conviction, God, that, that Father, we, we quit using you as a, a way of escape, God, as a, as a, as a way out of, of, of the messes that we make ourselves, Lord. And so, Father, help us to repent tonight, God, to confess our sins to you, to seek your forgiveness, God, and, Lord, to seek the strength that only you can give us, God, to continue each day to live a life that is acceptable to God, a life that will not disqualify us from his his person or his acceptance or or his his service, God. So, Lord, we thank you for the love of God. We thank you for the grace of God. We thank you for the mercy of God that endures forever. We thank you for his patience. But he never gives up on us, Father, as we give up on others, Lord. So, Father, bless your people, and and I pray that the conviction of the Holy Spirit would move among the hearts of the people, your people, God. And they call out to you, Lord. And they look to you, never neglecting the responsibility of their relationship with you, to love you with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their might. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.